I want to say thank you, choir. <laughs> but we do appreciate them and the work that they do and leading us in, in worship. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, for uh, being a part of that. If you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to look with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. And we've been talking about uh, Sunday matters because Sunday really does matter. And um, today, I want to talk to you about how history changed on Sunday. Uh, last week, we saw that everything begins with Sunday. God revealed his existence and his creation and his purpose for it all. But today we're going to look at how history actually changed on this great day. You know, a moment can change all of history. Think about uh, some of the events that have changed history. Uh, what about 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered a new world? About a, uh, what about 1592 when Martin Luther nailed his 99 Thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg and the Protestant Reformation began? Or how about uh, 1776 when the Continental Congress ratified the Constitution of the United States and a new nation was born? Or 1986 when the Berlin Wall fell and there was new freedom for communist East Germany. We could keep going through history. You understand that. But in all those moments, things changed. Not only can we see moments in history that have changed the world, we can see moments in our own lives that have made a difference in, in how we will live in the future. Think about the moments that changed your life. For example... The moment you were born, that was a big event, wasn't it? The moment you fell in love with your sweetheart. That moment you said, I do. That moment that first child was born. That moment that first grandchildren were born. Uh, that uh, moment in which you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. See, in that moment... Everything changed. History changed. And there are moments that change our lives. Today, we're going to talk about a moment in history, a moment that occurred on Sunday that changed not only history, but changed all of eternity. It's a moment that not only changes the world on a broad scale, it's a moment that changes our lives personally when it touches us. Now, Paul talks about this beginning in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. And in this passage, Paul is preaching in a, in a city called Antioch, Pisidia. It's a region in Galatia. And his custom was to begin each, uh, his ministry in each new city by taking the gospel to the Jews. And he would go into the synagogues where they were meeting each week, where they would hear the reading of Scripture, and where they would have hear teaching on that Scripture, and have a time of prayer, much like our service would be today. 
And uh, it was a, was a custom in that day that if there was a visiting rabbi, that they would ask the rabbi if he had a message, if he had something that he would like to share with the people in the synagogue. And Paul, would, as, a, as a Pharisee, would certainly have been recognized as a visiting Pharisee. And um, the, the, but the, the message that uh, uh, Paul is going to preach is, is an amazing one. And we're going to begin here in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. And I want you to look with me here to this great word from the Apostle Paul. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. On, on, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law, the prophets and the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now here, Paul goes into a brief history of the nation of Israel, and he talks about their expectation, their looking for, their uh, seeking for a Messiah. And then he tells them that God has sent this Messiah, and that it is Jesus. Look at now, look down to verse 28. We're going to pick up there in verse 28. And see what he says. And he says, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, that is Jesus, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And this is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come now to hear from you. May your word be preeminent today. And may your spirit move over our hearts and lives and make this live in us. May we receive your truth. May we be transformed by it. And may you be honored and glorified by it. May you meet the needs of your people. And may you draw those who do not know you to yourself. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, in this text, Paul is preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, that is, on Saturday. But the message that Paul preaches here has nothing to do with the Sabbath, but everything to do with Sunday. Sometimes people will ask me, why do we worship on Sunday and not the Sabbath? Is there something special about Sunday? And I say, absolutely, there is something very special about Sunday. You see, there are several things that are really, really important about Sunday. Let me just share with you a few Bible facts about 
uh, Sunday, seven Bible facts about Sunday. And we'll just start with number seven. Number seven, the book of Revelation was given on Sunday. And the Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You know what that day is? That is Sunday. It was on that day that he heard Jesus speaking to him, revealing the truth of the book of Revelation. Number six, the church was born on Sunday. And it tells us when the day of Pentecost had come and all the Jews were gathered together, on, you know what day Pentecost was on? It was on Sunday. And the church was born on Sunday. Number five, the early church met for worship on Sunday. On the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread, guess what? Paul began talking to them. Paul preached the message. They met together to worship the Lord on that day. The first day of the week is Sunday. Number four, the early church gave offerings on Sunday. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and to save as he may prosper so that no collections will be made when I come. The first day of the week, that's Sunday, they gave offerings just like we did just a few minutes ago in their service. Number three, the risen Lord commissioned his disciples on Sunday. And it tells us that when it was evening on the first day of the week, again, that is Sunday, that when the doors were shut and the disciples were there and they were in fear of the Jews, it tells us that the Lord comes into the midst of them and he says, peace be with you. And then he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus commissioned his disciples on Sunday. And then just shortly after that, the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles on Sunday. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Number one, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. But on the first day of the week, that Sunday, when they came to that tomb, you know what they found? They found an empty tomb. They couldn't find his body. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. So, uh, you see, why in the world uh, would uh, we celebrate this on Sunday? Because why, why did it become the primary day of worship? Very simple. Resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead. And since then, God's people have gathered. There's not been a Sunday in the history since then that God's people have not gathered together on that day, worshipped him, given offerings, heard the word, and related to him. Now, that's really important for us to understand because the earliest Christians in the church came from a Jewish background and they were all about the Sabbath. I mean, they were extremely connected to this idea that you worship on the Sabbath. Over the years, they had become strict about their Sabbath worships. In fact, they had incredible number of rules of things that you could not do on the Sabbath because it was so sacred. And when Jesus was walking in the earth in that time, he got in the most trouble with the religious leaders when he would heal or do miracles on Sunday. 
So all the early Christians were brought up with this strong conviction about the importance of the Sabbath. Ancient travelers, when they would come to this land, they would say there are three things that always amaze us about Israel. One, there's the Red Sea where no one can sink. Number two, there was a temple that, was, that had no gods for people to worship. And then there was number three, there's a day when nobody works. A day when they worship the Sabbath day. It was a big deal to the Jewish people. And yet with breathtaking suddenness, God changes the focus from the Sabbath to Sunday. To Resurrection Sunday, to the day that we worship. You see, Sunday matters. Why did Sunday become the primary day of Christian worship? Because of Resurrection Sunday. And as Paul comes to Pisidian Antioch, the day that he proclaims on the Sabbath, he, he proclaims Resurrection Sunday. Now I want you to consider six facets with me about Resurrection Sunday. First of all, I want you to consider the historical perspective. And it tells us there in verse 16 that Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, uh, listen. And I'm going to read, we're going to read quite a bit of scripture. We're going to get through this entire passage, but it's really important for us to see the big picture here of this. It says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after those things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then I, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought Israel a Savior, Jesus. You see, he, he's telling us the history. God chose Israel. God preserved them during their time of slavery. God brought them out of the land of Egypt. And he, then he watched over them as they wandered in the wilderness. Then he brought them into the promised land. And then for this time, he began to uh, rule them by judges, and then they asked for a king, and then they had a king, and, and finally there was a king, David, and what does he tell us? God raised up a ruler after in the line of King David, a savior, and his name is Jesus. Now, many people are looking for a savior, and Paul tells us very clearly that this savior, his name is Jesus. Jesus. Do you get the picture here? All of Israel's history was a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It was a preparation for the coming of the one who would die on Friday and raise from the dead on Sunday, a Savior named Jesus. No doubt you've heard of Helen Keller. She was, she was born both blind and deaf. As a result, she couldn't speak. But she eventually 
learned to communicate by touch. And she would have words spelled out into her hand. As a young woman, Helen was taken to a well-known pastor of her day. His name was Philip Brooks. Uh, you probably would know him. He's, he's a man who wrote that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And they took her to Philip Brooks so that he could give her some spiritual instruction. And, and uh, Pastor Brooks told Helen about Jesus. And as the gospel was being spelled out in her hand, her face lit up, and a smile came over her, and she began to sign back into her helper's hand. And she says, I knew all the time there must be someone like him. I just did not know his name. His name is Jesus. The Jews knew there was a Messiah coming. They just didn't know his name. And now it has been revealed to them that Jesus is the Messiah. Their history had been in preparation for his coming. So we see the historical preparation of Resurrection Sunday. And then we see the prophetic anticipation. It tells us in, beginning in verse 24, it says, And after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. Behold, the one coming after me, whose sandals, whose, whose feet I am not unworthy to, I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham, family, and those among you who fear God, to us this message of salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and hear their rule, and excuse me, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. Now, in verses 24 and 25, John, uh, or Paul begins to talk about John. That's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was one of the most fascinating men of all, in all of Scripture. I mean, he wore uh, rough clothes, he, he ate strange food, and he preached a hard message. And he preached a message out in the wilderness of repentance that people needed to, re to turn from their sin and turn to God. That was his message. It, he's talked about an about face. You have to turn away from your own way of life, and you have to turn back to God and he is telling them this so that they would be prepared to receive the Messiah that was coming. And, and when Jesus came on the scene, John recognized him as the one whom he had been proclaiming. The one, he says, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And in John's gospel, he calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is a New Testament personality, but in reality, he's an Old Testament prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he says that he comes to make sure that we understand that this is the message of salvation that has been proclaimed in the Old Testament. This is what God has been talking about, all that history. 
And he's trying to make the connection for the people. And, and there in verse 27, he says, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. In other words, Paul says, when he came, they didn't recognize him. And he was foretold by the prophets, but they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets. Instead, what did they do? They, they ignored the prophetic message, and in doing so, he says they actually fulfilled Scripture. Their rejection was already prophesied in the Scriptures, and they do that. And do, Let me ask you, do you understand that it is possible to have the truth right in front of you and miss it altogether? Do you understand that it is possible to come to church week after week after week and hear the truth proclaimed to you and never really receive it into your life? How many people do that? Hear the same message, the utterances of the prophets, but it has no effect, no impact on their real lives. Researchers did some tests one time. They showed participants a video of a team of basketball players passing a basketball and they said, we want you to count the number of times that the basketball players dressed in white pass the ball. About 30 seconds into the video, a woman dressed in a gorilla suit walks into the video, thumps her chest, and then walks out. Then they ask participants, how many times did the gorilla come into the video? Half the people did not see a gorilla at all. They were so busy counting the passes that were made by the white team that they totally missed it. It's a phenomena uh, that's called inattentional blindness. It's when you are so focused on one thing that you don't see the things around you. In the same way, the Jews had been exposed to the prophecies of the of the Messiah, they had heard it week after week in the synagogue. But when Jesus walked right into their midst, the Messiah that was prophesied, they didn't even recognize him. Didn't even know who he was. They were focused on everything, everything else. And I wonder how many people either ignore or miss the clear truth of what God is saying to them. Number three, there's the supernatural confirmation. In verse 28, he says, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, that is Jesus, they asked Pilate that he be executed. You know, they tried to find some reason to execute Jesus, but they couldn't find any reason at all. He just simply threatened their power and their position, and so they went to Pilate and they demanded he be executed without grounds without any kind of justification. Does that sound familiar in the world? You see, in verse 29, he says, When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Notice that even his death fulfilled prophecy. As they gambled for his clothes, as they pierced him through the side, as they nailed those nails into his hands, as none of his bones were, were broken, they carried out all that was written of him. 
especially in, the, in Isaiah the prophet. And it says they took him down from the cross. Now that word cross in the, in the Greek is the word tree. This is one of the rare cases where the New American Standard doesn't translate this word literally, but it should be because, you see, that was very important. Tree was very important. Paul uses it intentionally because in, in the Old Testament, someone who hung upon a tree was accursed. And he, what he's saying is that Jesus hung on that tree and he became a curse for our sin. He took the, the judgment of God upon, our, upon himself. And then it says they laid him in a tomb. That's finality. Did you know the Bible always emphasizes that Jesus not only was crucified, but that he was buried? That's the finality of it all. And then there was this huge stone that was rolled over the face of his tomb. It was finality. It looked like it was all done. But then what happens? Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Isn't that an amazing proclamation? If you want to know if he's the Messiah, then that's how you know. You see, and for many days he appeared to those who came up from the Galilee to Jerusalem and the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. All these people are testifying to the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he confirmed that everything that he said about himself was true. You see, I'm talking about the supernatural confirmation of Resurrection Sunday. Don't miss this. How do we know that he is, that he is God? Because of what he did, right? He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have authority to forgive sins. He claimed to have authority to give life, eternal life to everyone who believed in him. How do we know that's true? Because he came out of the grave, and he's alive. Imagine someone came up to you, and, and they said, I'm a, I'm a guitar virtuoso. I, I've uh, I played for many years with well-known bands. I've recorded a lot of songs. Man, I'm just good. I mean, that would be like Pastor Kevin, right? Saying, that. well, how would you know if that was true? Well, just hand him a guitar. Right? And it wouldn't take us long to know if he could really do what he said. How do you know if Jesus is God? Put him in the grave and he comes out. It's, it's a resurrection. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 puts it this way. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a supernatural confirmation, but also Paul talks about the personal transformation that's associated with this. It's one thing to believe all these things, but it's another thing to let Resurrection Sunday change your life. That's a question you ought to ask yourself very carefully. Has Resurrection Sunday changed my life? You see, that's exactly what Paul is talking to his listeners about. And he says, beginning in verse 32, he says, And we preach to you the good news, the promise made to the fathers. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what you need most of all. And then he says in verse 33, he says, That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. And that is 
as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Now get this, this is important. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and he went underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. You can't mix up David with Jesus because David died and he decayed, but Jesus rose and he is still alive. And he says, I'll go back. Look, we're talking about a personal transformation that happens on Resurrection Sunday. Paul tells them, I'm telling you good news. Good news that will change your life personally. What I'm preaching to you is not just historical. It's not just prophetic. It's, it's personal when it touches your life. Friends, this is not just information. This is not just interesting facts. This is the truth that you need right now in your own life. This great truth. And he says in verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now if I were to ask you who in this room needs forgiveness, we would have to say everyone, right? Because none of us have not sinned. All of us have fallen short. We all need God's forgiveness. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he says, to bring us forgiveness of sin. Not only can we be free, can we be forgiven, we can be free from it. It doesn't now dominate our lives. This is an incredible truth. You know, I heard the story of a father and, and his daughter, and they were hiking out on the Canadian prairie through the, through the grasslands. And as they were walking, they saw this raging fire, and they realized because the wind was blowing right at them, it was headed for them, and it was coming rapidly. The father knew that in just a, a brief while, this fire was going to engulf them. And they were, they were really terrified, but the father also knew what to do. He turned around, and he built a fire in the grass behind them. And that fire began to rage and began to consume the grass and, and, and move away from them. And then as this fire got closer and closer, they began to step into the place where the fire had burned. And when they got far enough away, his, the father wrapped his daughter in his arms, and he held her like this, and the fire came all the way to the edge of the grass, and it stopped. He couldn't touch them. You know why? Because they were standing where the fire had already been. Do you know that's the good news of the gospel? Judgment of God can't touch you. Because you, when you trust Christ, you are standing where the fire of judgment has already been. 
Jesus Christ went to that tree and became a curse for you. He took your judgment upon himself. And now because he's already taken that judgment, that judgment can't touch you. He, he bore in his flesh the flames of hell that were due you. And now you can be free. Not only forgiven, but free. See, he tells us that forgiveness is available to everyone who believes in him. And he's free from all things. Something that could not be accomplished under the law of Moses. You get that? And that includes you. If you call upon him, he will forgive you of your sin and he will free you from sin. Have you trusted him? Have you been forgiven? Have you been set free? Look at this. He talks about the lethal repudiation. Paul brought great news and he told them what they needed to do in order to be saved. And you'd think that, boy, everybody would be really excited about that. Well, some were, but most weren't. And he tells us in verse 40, he says, Therefore take heed so that the things spoken in the, in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Do you understand? This is a warning. And what he's saying, take heed, beware, don't let what has been told in the prophets come upon you. You need to understand this. He says, and as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that the things that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. They wanted to hear more. And he says in verse 43, Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews, of the God-fearing uh, proselytes, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Some people had believed already in this. And then the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And it says they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is the repudiation of the resurrection and four things happen in these verses that's significant paul warns them in the synagogue to beware of rejecting his message and number two he says um, many of the jews who believed they wanted to hear more the next sabbath but paul's message uh, was not accepted by everyone and uh, the, they became jealous and they ex they rejected the gospel and then paul says to them those who reject this message they're unworthy of eternal life. And now we are going to turn to the Gentiles. When we repudiate, when we contradict, when we deny and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the Resurrection Sunday, the consequences are eternally lethal. Do you understand that? Is this sinking in, that to reject this message is lethal? If you reject 
the gospel, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. You know, some time ago, I, I was having a discussion with someone who was antagonistic toward Christianity and the Bible and the gospel, and he, he essentially he just wanted to contradict everything that I said. And we had an intense hour and a half discussion. And I asked this man, I said, what, what do you think would happen to you if you were to die today? And he said, well, I don't know. I might, I might go to heaven, but not hell. He says, no one, no one, no reasonable person would believe in hell. And I asked him, I said, uh, so you believe in the supreme goodness of heaven, but not in the horror of hell? And he said, he asked me a question a lot of people ask. He said, uh, how could God ever send anyone to a place like that? I said, sin. Sin separates people from God. God has made a way for people to escape hell. That's what he has done. I said, and, and John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, that's why Jesus was sent. He came to take our sins so that we could escape hell. He said that couldn't be true. That would mean that if he's the only way, that would mean that all the other religions of the world are wrong. That's, that's arrogant and narrow-minded. And I asked him, I said, do you lock your doors at night? Do you allow anyone through your doors? And I said, do you have an online bank account? I said, how many passwords get you into your bank account? There's only one way, right? I asked him, I said, well, what if you were a research assistant and at great personal expense and time, you had developed a cure for a fatal disease? And what if you took that cure to someone who was suffering from that disease and you said, here, I have a cure for your disease. And they said to you, well, I don't really like the color of that. I don't like the smell of it either. And you say, well, without this, you are going to die. You need this. And, and the patient says, well, you know, I, I don't really appreciate you saying that I'm going to die. That's offensive to me. You say, well, no. I care about you. That's why I have dedicated all the time and energy that I put into developing this cure. Because I do care about you. Well, I don't really believe that your cure is the only one. I think I'm going to wait for one that's better. Do you, see the, do you see the correlation there when people say that there's only one way, or not only one way, but Jesus is the only, one, only way? See, God is not being narrow when he says that there's only one way. If there were some other way, Jesus would not have had to come into this earth. Jesus would not have gone to that tree and become our curse. Jesus would not have come into this world and suffered all that he did if there was another way. But there is no other way. And, and if you reject that, it's lethal. It's deadly. Let's look at this final idea here, the radical application. Verse 40, 48. When 
the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of, the, of, of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now God did something radical. He takes the message that was designed for the people of God about the Messiah, Jesus, and he now he says, I'm going to apply it to the Gentiles. You know what the Gentiles do, did when they heard that? They rejoiced. They were glad that that was going to come to them. Now, Gentiles were people just like you and me. They were non-Jewish pagans. Uh, they were people who had been involved in worshiping other gods, other idols. Uh, they lived lives of, uh, of sinfulness and impurity and, and greed. And they were just like people today. And he said most of them, uh, when they heard this message, rejoiced. And it says in verse 48 that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Well, they believed that message about Jesus? Yes, they did. And when he made that radical application to their lives, you know what happened? Their lives changed. The history of the world changed. God took the gospel from that little place there in Israel, that little nation, and took it out to the world so that it has been spread even to us today and is still continuing to go across the world. The history changed on that Sunday. Before John Newton turned 39, he lived a life of destructiveness and ungodliness and he indulged in every sin and vice that was available to him. But 39 years of age, he turned to Jesus Christ, and John Newton became a changed man. He spent the rest of his life showing God's love to others and, and helping them to follow Christ. And when you read, when you sing his most famous words that he wrote, you're singing his personal testimony. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And near the end of his life, John Newton said this. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's what we need to hear today. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And if you will turn to him, he will transform your life. He will forgive your sins. And he will set you free. He will give you eternal life. And this very day, not only history can change, but your eternal destiny can change. Sunday matters. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great truth. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday and what it means to us today. Lord, I, I pray for your people and I pray for those who do not know you today that we could respond according to what you have asked us to do this morning. If you're a believer, I, I want to ask you to consider one more time this commitment to the Lord. I want to ask you to, to consider giving God 
the Lord Jesus. Give him the first day of your week. Give him Sunday on a regular and faithful basis. Give the Lord the first moments of your day. Let him speak to you through his word and you speak to him in prayer. Give him the first fruits of your income, of all that you receive, and give him first place in your life. See, it matters. And today, if you've never trusted Jesus, just be assured that today, if you will turn to him, as John proclaimed, he will forgive you of your sin, and he will set you free give you eternal life. Do you want that today? Then call upon him. Just tell him that. I want that eternal life. Call upon him. In just a moment, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. As we do, this is your time to respond to him. I don't know what it is that God is working in your heart about. Maybe you just like to make this commitment. Lord, I'm going to make that commitment to give you first place in my life. Maybe you just need to come to the altar today and make that a, a commitment. Maybe you need to come and be a part of the family here at Five Point and say, this is where I'm going to serve. This is where my life is going to be. Maybe you need to come and acknowledge, I have trusted Christ as my Savior. I want eternal life. Whatever it is today, as we sing, would you come to Him? Help us, Father, now. May it be in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.